Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Now, in your film your family and the restaurant that you guys own is featured. And can we just talk about the food that you guys are serving there? Oh my God, that looks so good. Especially like that sushi roll thing. Like, what is that? It looks so good. It's basically like a shrimp tempura roll wrapped in like prime rib with this amazing glaze on it that we then use a torch and like caramelize it. Hey everyone, I'm Evelyn. Thanks so much for joining me here on Reppin. On this show, my goal is to bring you incredible talent from diverse genres, including newsmakers and leaders who all come to share their personal stories and the invaluable lessons they've learned along the way. In previous episodes, my guests and I have explored a wide range of topics, covering everything from mental health, empowering truth, overcoming loss, to navigating identity struggles. Today, we're diving deep into a subject that holds a lot of meaning for many of us, the American dream. It's an enduring and highly sought after ideal, but what does it truly mean? How do we define it? Has its meaning evolved over time? And who does it really belong to? My guest today is an incredible filmmaker who tackles these questions and more in his documentary, Bad Axe, which has earned a spot on the prestigious Oscars shortlist. Born and raised in the rural town of Bad Axe, Michigan, my guest embodies the spirit of diversity as a first-generation individual with Mexican and Cambodian heritage. His film, aptly named after his hometown, takes us on a journey into the lives of his own Asian-American family who faced incredible challenges in this tiny town during the pandemic. They confronted racial tensions and struggled to keep their family restaurant afloat amidst AAPI hate, and they fought to safeguard their American dream. This powerful documentary shows the resilience of a family in the face of adversity. It's a story about standing firm against a divided community and bravely confronting the forces of white supremacists. In this episode, my guest is the director behind this remarkable film. He's gonna take us behind the scenes, granting us unique insights into the making of Bad Axe. And together, we're gonna delve into the essence of the American dream, its evolution, and what it means to different individuals. So my friends, sit back, relax, and join me as I get real with David Siv. David, thank you so much for being on the show. First of all, congratulations on a great documentary and a great film. Both I'm saying this as an audience member and also as a producer who does a lot of documentaries. Fantastic film. And in the film, you tackle so many major themes. You did this in the time of COVID. You talk about what it's like being a minority or a person of color because your mom's Mexican, your dad is Cambodian, your first generation. So you're talking about all of this 
Bad Axe is like a tiny town of like 3,000 in Michigan. Tell me a little bit about what it was like for you to be multicultural in a tiny little town. Do you remember some of the foundational moments? Because I would imagine that you're probably faced more challenges of being a quote-unquote other in Bad Axe. Do you remember some of the seminal moments that you experienced? What happened and how did it impact how you saw the world and also yourself? You're right. I think as far as a sense of other that I've had to feel growing up, like that I have felt growing up, that was something I think I struggled with, my sisters struggled with, and even in some ways my parents struggled with. For me, being one of the only brown kids who was growing up in Bad Axe and going to school, you automatically feel that sense of other just based on how you look. But what's interesting is that I don't think you really think about those things like in the way that I do now after being an adult and having the opportunity to like just self-reflect on my own identity and how I, I was coming to terms of where did I belong in my community? The other things you're not necessarily thinking about as a kid. So for me, it was always about just trying to fit in and hide this part of who I am to fit in with everyone else in the community. This is, that's what assimilation is, right? That's exactly what I tried to do growing up. I remember my first day I ever rode the bus to school. It was probably like the second or third day to school because my mom would always take us to school the first day. And then after that, we were on our own. And so this was probably the second day of school. And I remember getting on the bus and I was looking for a place to sit. And this kid, he was around my age and I actually ended up growing up with him. He says, you can't sit next to me because you're an N-word. I had no idea what that meant at all. Oh my God. But it hurt my feelings. Yeah. He told me, he's like, you have to go somewhere else. And he's five years old at the time. I don't think he exactly knew the weight of the words that he was saying. But coming home from school that day and telling my mom that, and I remember this so distinctively, we had this conversation that this is something that is not right. It's not right he called you this. And it's an ugly part of this world we live in. And you just need to ignore it and not give so much attention to individuals who are going to treat you differently because of how you look. I think now that I'm an adult, looking back at that was like such a formative moment in my life because that was the first true experience I had of racism. Yeah. Growing up at home, you don't realize that Bad Axe is primarily a white community because you're just surrounded by your family for the most part. Right. And so when I started the school, you realize, oh, there's not a whole lot of kids that look like me. In fact, the only other person of color, there were two actually, it was this other black kid and then there was Austin's brother, Brett. It was just really the three of us. Just to be clear for sorry, Austin is your sister's boyfriend who also works at your family restaurant. Yes. That's correct. Yep. Austin and his older brother, Brett, who I went to school with, they're both black and they're both adopted by white parents. Okay. Just needed to clarify that for those who did not see the film. Absolutely. And even though mom had this conversation with you, how did that inform you in terms of how the world saw you and how you saw yourself? 
on Reppin on the podcast, there's been multiple times where in various cases, identity is a huge issue and not feeling like you belong. So yeah. with that conversation with your mom, I mean, we're still like five or six years old. It's still pretty freaking hard. Yeah, it's honestly hard to look back on how I processed it because that was just so long ago. But I imagine that was like the first moment I had realized that there was this sense of other. And especially going to school and seeing who my classmates were, right? There were not people that looked like me. Right. Like people would call me Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan. And I don't think that was necessarily meant to be a mean thing at all. But for them, that's how they associated what someone look, like me looked like was based on what the very few people that are represented in that community, which at that time, it was Jackie Chan. I think it informed me in a way that, okay, I do look different and I am different than my classmates and other people in my community. And then as I continued to get older and continue to go to school, I realized that I was beginning to assimilate in ways to hide this sense of identity of who I am. Yeah. An example of that was, I remember bringing a school lunch from home for lunch at school for the first time. Right. And it was basically just white rice and this dried shredded pork. We call it bai yang. And when I took this school lunch out of lunch pail and opened it up, kids thought it was the weirdest thing and started pointing out like how strange of a dish I was eating. And it made me feel like embarrassed. It made me feel ashamed. Yeah. And I never ended up bringing this food that I love so much to lunch anymore. Right. And it's because I didn't want to feel that sense of embarrassment. I didn't want to feel that sense of shame. That's an example of how whether it was conscious or subconscious, that I was trying to hide a part of who I was. Right. I would only eat that food at home. Even when my friends came over, it wasn't until I got to know them well enough that I would feel comfortable eating that food again. It's really interesting, I think, reflecting on this as an adult and realizing, wow, I was hiding a sense of who I was and where I came from just in the food that I was deciding to eat in front of my friends. I can relate, certainly, because I've talked about bringing my like prized strawberry shortcake lunchbox. You're probably too young to know what that is, so I'm going to go cry in the corner in the meantime. I, I, I know it's strawberry shortcake. <laughs> okay, just, just checking, because I will have to call my therapist after. And not wanting to have Chinese food. I wanted peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Instead of being called Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee, I unfortunately was called, because this was like Pretty in Pink, the John Hughes era of films, which was like a great string of iconic films. And I certainly love them, but I didn't love being called Long Duck Dong. So I understand that. And I think only recently, having conversations with you and having other conversations with people in the podcast, have I found a community of people that I can go, oh my God, me too. Yeah. And it made me realize that I needed it so badly. But let me just go back to this. In the film, tackle being an other during the pandemic, right? So your family has this amazing restaurant, which, by the way, I'm not kidding. I'm dying to eat there. I've already looked at the menu and I know what I want to try. <laughs> you come from this family and in this film, you talk about themes of what the American dream is, family dynamics, intergenerational trauma, being an Asian in a small town, in the middle of a pandemic. How did your identity and your upbringing inform the film 
Do you remember the moment that you said, okay, we need to document it because we were in unprecedented times. But also having said this, I will be very upfront and say that even before the pandemic, I would say during the 2016-2017 elections, I was never made more aware of my ethnicity than during that time. And it certainly was exacerbated during COVID right? because terms of Kung flu were readily thrown about. So all of that to say is from the moment that you shared this story of you being called the N-word as a five-year-old to the pandemic, and I know this is a huge leap, but what was the moment that you realized you're a filmmaker, you're a storyteller, what is it that you wanted to tackle in this film? One question I get asked a lot in Q&As is, did you set out to make this documentary? Mm -hmm. That answer is yes and no. It's yes, because even prior to the pandemic, I have always wanted to share my family's story. Because when I look at my parents, my mom, a Mexican-American woman, and my dad, a Cambodian refugee who came to this country with nothing but the shirt on his back in the year 1979 after surviving the Cambodian killing fields and yeah. getting his mom and his five siblings out alive. And then coming to this country and the story of how these two individuals overcame so much adversity and raising a family and starting a business and all the hardships that came along with that. To me, that is the American dream story. That to me, my parents and my family, they epitomize that. I always knew that was a story I wanted to share. I never knew that would be told in the form of a documentary film though. The reason why I've always wanted to share my family's American dream story is to open up the dialogue and the conversation of what does it mean to be American? Because here I am growing up in Bedex, Michigan for almost 20 years of my life and never quite finding my place and where I fit in this community and in this country. And then I do realize that as I was growing up and growing older and then moving to college and again, meeting people with similar experiences, I realized that everything my family went through, that's a part of the American experience for so many families. We're just as American as any other family because America so much is a country that is built on the experiences of refugees and immigrants. But there are a lot of people who don't see that experience as being part of the American experience. They look at that specifically as, oh, that's just the immigrant experience, or that's the experience of this Cambodian Mexican family. But no, it needs to be talked about when we talk about what the American experience is. So when I began filming in March 2020, the intention wasn't to make a documentary film. It started off as doing what I've always loved doing, which was bottling my family and memories through my photography and through home videos. Yeah. And th there was this intuition that there was this interesting time. But again, my intention wasn't to make a documentary. It was just doing what I love doing. Understood. So I'm filming throughout the first couple of months of the pandemic. And you're seeing how the restaurant is trying to overcome this financial struggle of how do we stay open? How do we adapt? 
how do we keep this business going and at a time where restaurants are struggling now more than ever? Again, did not think I was making a documentary. But when the light bulb did go off for me that, oh, I think this story I've always wanted to share is telling itself in front of my very eyes in the form of everything I've been capturing was actually right after the Black Lives Matter movement happened. That's when we really started editing the film. And the reason for that is you see in the film that you see the death of George Floyd and you see how the country at large reacts to it, but then you see how this small community in Bad Axe, Michigan, that is less than 3,000 people, 97% white, politics lean more conservative. How is this community going to react to this movement? And there's this protest that happens yeah. in Bad Axe, Michigan, of all places. This is something I never thought would be possible. I don't think any of my sisters thought would be possible. My family, I don't think, I don't think a lot of people thought this day would come where Bad X would have a Black Lives Matter protest. But it did. And we decided to show up. And you see the reservations from my dad about us attending. For him, he's reserved because he knows if people see my siblings and I go to this protest, there's going to be repercussions for the restaurant. Yeah. So when we showed up to this protest, it was such a beautiful moment and something we never expected would happen in our community. But here it is, people all coming together to stand in solidarity of this movement that was happening in our country. Then you see the neo-Nazis and these white supremacists show up. And the first people to confront those individuals were my sisters and me. Yeah. Because for us, we felt, how dare you guys try to come into this community and a protest that is so beautiful and so peaceful and try to intimidate the community with your guns and your racial slurs and hailing Hitler. We wanted to let them know that we weren't afraid of them. After the protests ended and we all show up at the restaurant the next day, there begins to be these social media blowback from people in our community saying, we're not going to support the restaurant anymore because we heard they support Black Lives Matter movement happen. There were so many comments of the people standing on the side of the white supremacists and saying, oh, we heard that these kids were uh, provoking them and that they were looking for trouble. Like kids as in us, like my siblings and I. And all of a sudden, these feelings of other, they were all starting to resurface all over again. Right. Because here we are part of the community for over close to 20 years, thinking that we're beginning to find our place and where we belong in this community. All of a sudden, we're being put in this box all over again and being told that we're not going to support you if you don't think like us. It's like my dad says, you know, how he was able to make it in this country for so long was just by keeping his head down and not speaking too loudly and going into work, working hard. And that's how you achieve the American dream. All of a sudden, that's all being threatened now, this American dream, because this restaurant that we have fought so long to build and have fought so long to find our place in the community, that's all being threatened. That's why I say I realized that I had a film or I was in the middle of making a film after the Black Lives Matter protests. Right. Because this American dream story that I've always wanted to share and this American dream that we fought so hard for over 20 years to build, it was being challenged. 
And it was being challenged with mm-hmm. a pandemic going on, a racial revolution going on, API hate going on. Yeah. And then just a very politically divided nation. So it became very clear to me that the time to tell my family's story mm-hmm. is now. There became a sense of urgency all of a sudden right. that my family and many families like mine were fighting to have our voice and to find our place in this community to be able to speak as loudly and proudly as anyone else in our community. But we're seeing consequences when that happens. Right. And that's not right. Right. Because we deserve to have a voice and to be able to speak up in this community just like anyone else. So that's when the wheels really began to spin. And it went from hours of home videos to this is a story of America and the American dream right now for my family and many families like mine. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. So you brought up a bunch of different things I wanted to hit upon, and I'll kind of go back to it. First of all, as a person and having done films and stories and shows, I know it's different from watching the footage 
to getting it unfiltered, like in the moment. You know what I mean? So you have two hats on at all times, basically your producer director hat on, but you can't take off your personal hat as much as you'd like to, right? Yep. So here you are. There is a scene in the film, a really insane scene. You and your sister, Jackie, who I've said to you privately, and I'll say this again, I would not want to catch her in a dark alley. You guys are confronting two guys with like gigantic assault rifles. I think the first point I want to touch upon is you have this beautiful moment where there is an awareness and a sense of activism and a sense of community to stand together to represent the racial injustice and inequities that exist because of the George Floyd incident that was ignited. Right. But then you have this ugliness sort of living in the same time where you are confronted in a very tangible way, the hate, the ignorance, and the very real life threat to your family at the same time. So that's an interesting place because you're existing in two conflicting emotions and places at once. That's the first thing. Going back to your father and also the American dream, and I'm just putting this together now, is he is, by the way, he is a badass. I don't want to even want to catch him on a lit alley with chaperones. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he seems like a lovely man, but holy shit, the dials from one to 10, he's on 25. Yeah. He is so hardcore because he's escaped the killing fields. I mean, he built something from nothing. Your family is truly an American dream story. But here's the other thing. He has succeeded, and my parents too, and this might be an immigrant thing, I don't know, by shutting your mouth, keeping your head down, and working your ass off. And now we have to voice because I guess my question to you is, now that you've experienced it both in person and also seeing it through the film, right? because I'm imagining as you're watching your story, it's a little bit of an out-of-body experience and you can see it in a different way. But you and Jackie certainly are not keeping your head down and shutting up about it. And this might be a generational thing, too. Right. But what do you think? Should we shut up and just be quiet about things and just succeed the way your dad did? He is an incredible human being in terms of what he has survived, what he has built, how he has raised you guys. But is that the right way is to just assimilate and be quiet? Or is it time to rock the boat and how to do it? Because you are witnessing this moment of tremendous outpouring of love and support, but also this tremendous amount of hate and ignorance. Which is the right way to do it? For me, the American dream that my parents had is so much different than the American dream of my siblings and I, this first generation of today. Because for my parents, it was just all about keeping your head down, having that financial stability, being able to keep a roof over your family's head and also creating a better life for your children that you never had. Mm -hmm. That is the old definition of the American dream where I feel like the American dream of today, of my generation, it of course includes all of that, but it's so much more than that now. Okay, It's being able to have a voice and speak up and to be seen as American as anyone else here to have the same rights and to have the same opportunity and the same ability to speak up. Right. 
And I think with this film, that's something I realized throughout the making of this is that my American dream is so much different from my parents. That's interesting. Because we do want that representation. Yeah. So is it right to do to stay quiet and to keep our heads down and to get to work? No, absolutely not. I think that's what our parents had to do in order to make it. But that's not what we have to do now. We are already living much better lives than our parents had right. because of how hard they worked. Right. So we can take that a step further now and fight for our place. We can fight for our place and where our identity lies in America, which is being, we are American. Our experiences, that's why I say when this film is all about, for me, it, I wanted to open up the dialogue and the conversation about what it means to be American. And part of that is talking about what is the American dream of today? And it is to be seen as American as anyone else in your community. I've realized this whole American dream epiphany really after the film came out, when I began to see the true impact of what happens when we share our stories and we share our voices. Bad X, we opened up at South by Southwest and had an incredibly successful festival run since. Yeah. Been to like over 20 festivals, have won over 20 awards. Yeah. Even won a Critics' Choice. Yeah. You've kicked some ass, David. We've kicked some, we've kicked some ass. <laughs> and you should own that shit, man. Own it. Yeah, you're right. As an independent film that had no budget, and no backing, definitely kicked some ass. Good. And what's been really special about this experience of being on the road and sharing our story is the conversations that happen after people get a chance to actually watch the film. Yeah. The true test for us, though, like the real true test was how was the community of Bad X going to respond to this? Yeah. So Bad X, we had our festival premiere in March 2022. We opened up in theaters on Thanksgiving weekend in November of 2022. Throughout those eight or nine months, whatever it was, and when the trailer dropped for the film, there was a lot of people in our community that were not happy about the film. And this was before anyone really even had the chance to see it. So that's why I say showing the film to the community of Bad X was a true test. And Bad X did play in the Bad X Theater here locally for two weeks. So Thanksgiving weekend comes around and I'm in LA. I planned on celebrating Thanksgiving with my wife's family. And my mom called me and she says, David, I really think you should come home. And this is a really special moment for all of us. And how often is your film Bad Axe going to be played in Bad Axe. I think it's important that you come home and witness this for yourself. And so I did. I'll come home and just see how the community reacts to it. I ended up showing up unannounced to every screening that happened that weekend. And some people are shocked. They couldn't believe it. Oh my gosh, I'm here. And it was really special being able to share that moment because at every single screening, there would be somebody that would raise their hands during this very informal Q&A, and they would say, I do not agree with your family's politics at all. But thank you so much for sharing your story because I did not know this experience existed in our community. These were the exact same people that were stopping my mom in Walmart and telling her they weren't going to support the restaurant anymore because of what I was doing. Right. Some of these were the same people that after the Black Lives Matter protests, they were unknowingly siding with white supremacists mm. and saying that we were the ones gating the conflict in this protest. These were the people that were leaving a lot of the nasty social media comments. And for me until this point, 
I think I always wanted to believe that cinema has this power to invoke change beyond the screen. But in my heart, if I'm honest, I don't know if I truly believe that. And I think part of it has to do just with everything that was going on in our country for the past few years and what I've witnessed my family experience in Bad Eggs. But I did have hope, though. After having these real difficult and honest conversations with members of the community who thought we were fabricating our experiences and that we're saying racism doesn't exist. Yeah. Hearing from them and seeing them open up their hearts and have a dialogue about an experience that was different than theirs and recognizing that experience as a real experience. It truly did make me realize that storytelling and cinema do have the power to create real change because change happens one person, one conversation at a time. Yes. You even see the opening shot of Bad Axe as you're going into the town of Bad Axe. One of the shots is you see a big Trump sign with these Trump flags and everything. The woman who actually owns that sign, she reached out to my mom the day after she saw the film opening weekend. And she said, Rachel, I don't know if you know me, but my husband and I, we own the Trump sign that you see as you go into Bad Axe. And I just want to let you know that I'm so proud of your family and your son for sharing your story. Oh. And we welcome you into this community. For me, that's all I ever wanted this film to do, to open up the dialogue of what it means to be American. And the fact that many of these individuals who may have looked at us as other are now seeing us as part of their community, just like any of their other neighbors. Yeah. That was the bridge I always wanted to build. And by sharing our story, we were able to do that. That's why I say this film has made me realize my own American dream. So beautiful. I feel like it has given me and my family a voice. And those who do give the film a chance, they no longer look at us as other, but as just their fellow community members, yeah. their fellow American. So beautifully said. There's so much there. I want to say thank you so much for opening my eyes to the idea of an American dream. Because your film, if I may, for me, my interpretation is even though you tackle a lot in your film, and we haven't even gotten into the intergenerational trauma and the conflicts within a, a family and still the values of your family is strong, despite the fact that you guys bang heads like crazy. But I think ultimately for me, my big takeaway, this film really is about what the American dream is. And you just opened up my eyes in the sense that you're right. I was thinking like the American dream is about making something out of nothing, creating opportunity. But I had not really unpacked it to think that the American dream has now elevated because we are standing on the shoulders of our families, you know, our parents who immigrated here, who didn't speak the language, who worked their faces off, who took an immense amount of bullying and condescension and beratement for us to have the lives that we do. You're right. It's time we bring the American dream. It's like the American dream 2.0. It's time that we voice and say, not only do we, do we deserve and have earned a seat at the table, we also deserve to have input in this country because, and I hadn't thought about any of this until you just made me aware of it. It's actually two things. One, your family has been a part of the Bad Axe community for many years and has probably served 
the community more than some individuals who have lived there. Now, I'm not saying that one deserves more weight than the other. I'm just saying that your parents, they have a business there that serves the community. And just being a resident there doesn't necessarily automatically give you the rights to say, hey, I'm better than you. But I think the power of storytelling, and this is my method when I'm producing, is you're able to humanize socially important issues. And let me just clarify, when people hear socially important issues, a lot of times they check out. But socially relevant issues is really just another way of saying all the different shit that we're all going through. It's just important shit that we're all going through. That's what socially <laughs> relevant issues mean. Absolutely. But to your point, what you gave people was perspective and representation of what racism is, what it's like to be on the receiving end of it, to be a part of a community who has given back but was getting punished because they either didn't know racism existed or felt what it was like. You know, again, one of the reasons why I started this podcast is until we see each other for the people that we are, not based on our skin color, our jobs, your actions, that's what it is. And I think your showing your story is about giving people perspective because did you say somebody didn't re believe that racism was real? Yeah, we had people say that this is all just being blown out of proportion and that this these people aren't experiencing real racism. It's all fabricated to fit their narrative. Mm. That's something that we've been told in so many social media comments and so many messages I've received. And it, it felt like those were telling us that our experiences weren't real and that they didn't matter. Does that make your brain hurt to understand, to hear from somebody, this isn't real, you're imagining racism? Sure, it absolutely does. It really makes you scratch your head. And what do you think we need to do to change that? The way we do change that is through sharing our personal stories and through storytelling. The fact that the individuals who thought we were exaggerating this racism that was in our community, see, for them, they thought that we were saying Bad Axe is a racist community. Bad Axe has its racism just like any place else in this country exactly. does. It's not a perfect place at all. And to say that any place in the United States is perfect is just crazy. It's very naive to think. When I say that Bad Axe, this film, is a love letter to the community, it is. Mm -hmm. And it is also one to my family. It's both of those things. But yeah. the reason why it is a love letter to Bad Axe is because it has made my family who we are today. It has created this bond between us and this resilience that's instilled in us of everything we have had to go through. But Bad X still has a long ways to go. And that love that I have for my community, it's unconditional. And when you love something unconditionally, you never stop fighting for it to get better. I'm very grateful of how I've been able to make Bad X better is by making this film and sharing my family's story. Yeah. Because I've seen firsthand how it has built that bridge between what people know and what people don't know. Yeah. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. And that's why representation is so important in Hollywood and storytelling, right? This is how people learn about these stories. Right. The fact that... Bad X, the film, has had the success that it's reached. It just makes me so grateful because I know that 
with all the success of the film also comes along that many more people who are going to seek it out and find it, which means there's only going to be so many more conversations that take place with families like mine and communities like Bad X. Your voicing your story also helps validate other experiences that may not have had language to it. Now, I understand that when you're shooting it, again, you're wearing multiple hats because you have to think like a producer. You have to think like a director while you're capturing something that is immediately unfolding. But there is a moment where your family went through a lot of backlash with people who did not believe in masking. Right. Now, I'm not saying personally whether you should mask or not mask. This is not a political conversation. But what I am saying, though, there is a moment in the film where there were some people that customers, community people that lived in Bad Axe that wanted to come into your family's privately owned business and did not wear a mask. Okay, we all have difference of opinions here. However, how they behaved is what I'm talking about. Absolutely. You can disagree and respectfully disagree, right? And just say, okay, I'm not eating here. Whatever, that's their choice. Right. But their choice of behavior was extremely aggressive. It was belittling you and your family. Yeah. Yeah, like really just like a five-year-old on a major fucking tantrum. Right. And when you're witnessing this, as this is unfolding, you're seeing the racism, you're seeing the anger and the inability to say, okay, I don't agree with this, so I'm not going to eat here. But it, that wasn't a conversation that was happening in that moment. Right. It was, can you talk about what that was like for you to actually experience as a person, not necessarily as a filmmaker, to feel the weight they were angry and it was coming at you full blast. And I think it was also belittling that was so maddening for me. For you to feel that and to see that your family was on the receiving end of it, can you talk about how that impacted you? Did it give you more resolve to do more stories like this or did it hurt? I was so angry during that moment. Yeah. You know, this was at the height of COVID. People were still getting sick and hospitals were overrun. And to see the way that these individuals decided to really combat at us because they didn't agree with our restaurant's policies. Yeah, I think it ticked everyone in my family. Yeah. I felt like that was really important to capture. Part of me puts on that producer director hat knowing that. And by this time, again, I already knew I was making a documentary. At right. So I knew this was going to be a very telling of the times we were living in by capturing this action. Right. But at the same time, as me being just who I am, having my own emotions play into this scene, I think the motivation for capturing it, aside from the documentary part, was the camera was this weapon that I knew they did not appreciate. Like, they were really pissed off that I decided to turn the camera on. And, you know, it's well within my rights to do that. That's why we didn't have to blur their faces when they were on our property. And, right. and it was on your property. So yeah. For me, I wanted to point the camera as close as I could to their face to let them know that the world is watching and that you are going about this interaction the completely wrong way. There's just so many other ways that this could have been handled. Yeah. That it just came down to disrespect, which was very infuriating to watch these people talk to my mom like this. So that moment where the man, as they're leaving, he says, screw you, smiley fucking face. 
Yeah. That's just me. I'm like smiling ear to ear because I'm like, what are you doing? Like the world is going to see this. And here is this camera right here capturing all of this. Right. There's very little that was from that scene. We didn't like construe that footage or edit it in any way. We some stuff out just because I can't show like a three minute scene. Right. In the film, you have to cut that on time. Right. But I truly do wonder when they look back on that, do they think maybe we could have handled that a different way? Really? Right. And people who do have disagreements about the mask policy with us, like after watching that, I do wonder, okay, would it discourage others to handle situations? Because they could have very easily just decided not to eat there or somewhere somewhere else. All we're asking is like, if you come inside, because, you know, we have an outdoor patio and that's where they were eating. If you come inside to use a bathroom, just respect our rules. It's the same thing as that if you go to a friend's house and their mom wants you to take your shoes off at the door, just just take your shoes off at the door. Yeah. And if that's so hard for you, you shouldn't go to that friend's house. Yeah. It's not a lot to ask to just behave just respectfully. Question for you. Have you heard from those people since they've seen the film? And have you gotten yeah. a reaction? You haven't. I haven't heard from have them. Have you tried reaching out? I don't know who they are personally, oh, gotcha. to be honest. I, I know other people who have said they know them that have watched the film. I personally have no idea. And they have been back at the restaurant scent, which is fine. Again, this is not a discussion of whether you believe in wearing masks or not. Going back to your point, Essentially, if you're going to someone else's property, it's just like basic decorum Yeah. to respect someone else's. Like you said, if you're going into someone's house, they might want you to put pants on. If you're not wearing pants at your house, that's great. Then stay at your house. Yeah, right. But if you're coming to my house, please put on a pair of pants. I mean, I'm exaggerating here. But the point is, it's not a lot to ask to respect someone. And I think Regardless of what you believe in terms of masking, not masking, politics, whatever, there are just so many different ways to behave as an adult. If you don't agree, don't dine there. It's that simple. Yeah. That's all that's needed. Based on the time that you shared at the beginning of our conversation where you called the N-word when you were five, to just growing up and having more self-awareness as well as societal awareness, and now also doing this film both as a producer and also as a person. And I say this because, and for those who don't do what we do, if I was shooting what you were shooting at that moment where there was all this chaos that was literally exploding in front of your mom, on one part of me, I'd be like, oh my God, this is great fucking footage. This is a great scene and it's so important to show. On the other hand, I would be completely mortified and embarrassed and sad to see that from the time that you were five and you faced the N-word all the way to now, in many ways, that racism is still so real. How have you taken the experiences, and I know this is a huge arc here, David, from the time you were five and you were called the N-word to now and witnessing that this hate and this ignorance and this fear and discrimination is still something we are still in a very real way, yeah. actually fighting, I think, much more openly yeah. than we ever have before. How does that hit you personally? And how does it impact you seeing, oh, this is what we're still dealing with and this is how I'm going to deal with it? Hmm. Bet you haven't been asked that in your Q&As. 
I haven't. It's a good question. So I guess now going from the time that you weren't aware, but you knew you were another, to now knowing and just really seeing it from so many different angles, how has it shaped you now? And how do you think you're going to go forward in dealing with and managing the real and openly challenges of being an other? How all of these experiences have shaped the person I am today from the time I was that five-year-old being called the N-word to now having this awareness and this self-realization. I think it's made me very, I don't know if this is the right way to say, but it's made me very proud of who I am and what I've overcome. It's made me want to fully embrace and love myself as this Cambodian Mexican kid. Something that for so long I tried to ignore and tried to put under the rug. Now I just want to learn everything about my identity and where my parents came from and their stories and their parents' stories and my dad's stories. It just has made me very proud of, of just how far our family has come. I hope by sharing our stories and sharing my story, it will empower the next generation, my nieces, to fully love and embrace who they are and not try to assimilate or try to fit in just because they might feel different. I want them to embrace what it is that makes them unique. I think that's what this entire journey has made me realize. When I get a chance to share bad acts with educational communities, like I've been going doing a lot of speaking engagements at just different universities. And these kids are, are 10 years younger than me. So they're at that age where I was coming to this self-awareness and realization for the first time. They're seeing a family on screen and I'm talking specifically like these AAPI communities at these universities I showed. Yeah. They're seeing this family on screen that so much reflects the experiences that they had. And when I hear these individuals thank me because of how they feel seen and represented because of my family's story, I hope it inspires them to go and share their story and to fully embrace who they are. And to not look at themselves as other, but to look at themselves as American and to embrace what makes them unique of being first generation or second generation, whatever it is. I think that's what's been so rewarding about going out there and sharing our story. It, it, that's why representation is so important. We need to see ourselves represented on screen. It's what empowers us to go and share our own stories. That's what I hope it continues to do is it, it will empower the next generation and allow them to love themselves for who they are. I love that. I think you're definitely one of those people that are in the pact of, and I'm going to say this, the conversion of feeling embarrassed or like a little bit shy or to shun, quote unquote, one part of ourselves. Because a lot of people have shared similar experiences of trying to deny one side of themselves versus the other. And it's not shame. I don't think it's shame. I think it's the fact that when you're being told blonde hair, blue eyed, white, Anglo-Saxon is the, you know, 
chosen one or the one that gets all the opportunities. You just want to belong. Who the hell wouldn't want that? Mm-hmm. But I think what you said, and I am just, again, I'm making this connection now, is, and I've said this before in a past episode, I actually obviously knew I was Chinese, duh, but didn't have a palpable sense of pride in being Chinese until Crazy Rich Asians. Because I was like, damn, I'm Chinese. That's awesome. I was like super excited. And I think you're right. I think you are one of those people that are in this community that's leading the charge of converting the embarrassment or the not wanting to be who you are to hell yeah, I'm Mexican and Cambodian. I think now that you've put language to that and cemented that idea in my head, I'm going to fucking run with it too. I love that. And I think you're right. Now I'm looking at you and going, you're right, man. The American dream, that was right for then. It's time for us to evolve and to transcend that idea. And now it's time to say, I earned the seat and I'm going to sit comfortably in it. I have a right to be heard and to have that input validated. So I think for all of those reasons, I appreciate what you're doing in terms of converting what was to what is needed to be. I need you to sign us off. Let me know who you are and what you represent. My name is David Siv, and I represent the American dream. Huge thanks to David Siv for being my guest and for creating this powerful documentary, Bad Axe. It's a must watch. It showcases the love for family, the love for community, and the love for America. Seriously, go check it out and make sure you follow David's career. I'll drop his links in the episode description for you. Now, I want to give a big shout out to all of you amazing listeners. Seriously, your support, it means the world to me. If you've got any thoughts or you want to chat, hit me up on Twitter at Reppin Podcast or on the gram at Reppin underscore podcast. And don't forget to swing by my YouTube page for some exclusive content. Now, to keep this series going strong, I need your help. Please share, subscribe, download, and leave a review. It really does go a long way. All right. Next up is a two-part special. You'll first meet Pardeep Kalika, a Muslim man who in 2012 tragically lost his father in a mass shooting, which was carried out by a white supremacist. Then you'll meet Arno Michaelis, my other guest, who is a founding member of one of the largest white nationalist groups in the 1990s. And there's more. The shooter who killed Pardeep's father was actually in the group that Arno founded. Did you follow that? It's wild, right? And there's another twist. Now, Pardeep and Arno are friends and working together to promote healing and unity. You'll meet both on a very special two-part episode right here on Reppin Next. Now, before we wrap things up, I want to give a big shout out to my awesome technical director, Nelson Pinero. This guy loves and cares about the show so much, and I'm so grateful. And of course, a special thank you and lots of love to Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.